Get ready to take notes and elevate your game, folks. This week, we have the one and only Michael F. Shine joining us. He's a two-time uh, guest on This Week with Sabir. He's the mastermind behind the best-selling book, The High Handbook, available on wherever popular books are sold, like Amazon and, and such, and the founder of Microfame Media, a company that turns unknown businesses into household names. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one because we are talking about building amazing secret societies. It's a very intriguing topic. Michael, welcome to the show again. Hello, Sabir. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. I always love talking with you. This will be fun. Yep, definitely. So you're a two-time guest on our show, right? I'm, I'm not SNL, so I don't have a jacket <laughs> to give you. But on as you can see, under your name, it says X2, right? Yeah. And I've well, had very you. few guests among the 100 episodes I've done so far that I've had guests repeat. But you know, but this was very intriguing when you and I connected about secret societies. We can definitely dive deep into it. Uh, so since your since your last visit, where we discussed the high pan book uh, in quite a detail in the other episode, and we will link it to this episode too, so people can check out that one too. Uh, how has the release of the book affected uh, your business? It's been a big deal. Thank you for asking, because when I was on the show the first time, it was pretty soon after the book release and, and time does fly. It's been about two years since the book was released. And, um, you know, we were a successful business before. That being said, even though we use the principles of what I call hype, where I look at non-traditional marketer, their strategies to more traditional businesses. Um, we always framed ourselves as a marketing agency because that's what people knew. It was really hard to tell people, hey, we do this weird thing called hype. We, we went out and we marketed ourselves as a marketing agency. And ever since the book has come out, I've been fortunate that it's gotten a lot of attention. Now I get phone calls and emails that say, hey, I want some of that hype stuff. I want to become a hype artist. <laughs> so um, now I'm in exactly the position I've wanted to be in a long time where I've become sort of known as the hype guy. And um, other than the the things you would expect where it's really driven a lot of business, it's it's really changed some elements of our business. So for example, um, now when we work with clients, we go hype strategy to hype strategy. So we'll focus on like hype strategy one, which is make war, not love, which is about having a very firm point of view. And we'll dig really deeply into that and we'll build experiments so that they can use that strategy to drive all kinds of attention and emotion around whatever they're selling. And I no longer have to explain what that means because the book kind of did a lot of that groundwork for me. So that's been really exciting and really fun. And, you know, the speaking gigs are nice, getting to go and speak to these concepts in front of audiences and the press appearances, the, the sort of egomaniac in me who, who dreamed of being interviewed uh, as a novelist on TV shows or in a band uh, sort of likes that part as well. <laughs> You're feeding that part of your... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... You did. You just mentioned that you shifted. I, I think that's what you said. You shifted your business model, right, from uh, more like a marketing agency or strategy agency to uh, becoming this hype agency. And uh, how how did that change come about? And and how did you implement it? And and what actually triggered you to make that change? So it's really interesting. So I've been running this business in one form or another for about 11 or 12 years. 
And when, when I had a more traditional agency model where we would bring on a client, uh, and, and handle their marketing. You know, I mean, if they wanted social media done, we would handle the social media. If they wanted copywriting done, we would handle the copywriting. If they wanted PR done, we would handle the PR. We did it our way, but we were sort of their go-to marketing person. Although we always got good results, which is why we stayed in business so long and why we grew and why I got the opportunity to, you know, write the book really, because McGraw-Hill, they want you to be a good writer, but they also want successful business people. I really learned something interesting about human nature. I mean, have you, you've heard that concept of, of um, what is it? Under promise, uh, over deliver. I'm not sure I agree with that because what I found was that whatever you deliver becomes the new standard, right? So when you deliver at a very high level for a client, they expect that going forward, which is great. But the problem is the client's don't bake the principles of marketing or hype or sales, whatever you want to call it, into their DNA. So the kind of thing that would happen was, and, and I would do this if I were on the client side, it's human nature. When you hire someone, especially at a premium, to do your work for you, psychologically, you just kind of feel like you're waving a magic wand and getting that service handled, getting that marketing handled. The problem is, of course, you're selling Coca-Cola. It's okay to just hire an advertising firm to put Coke ads all over. But if you're selling ideas, which a lot of these businesses are, their services, they need to build sort of an audience around the, the founder or the leader or the ideas. If you just abdicate the marketing of that to an agency, go do it. It really, it's a, a lot of tough conversations have to happen. So we would have things in the extreme where we would book, uh, big press interviews for people and our clients, very well-meaning people would show up and completely disregard everything we trained them on. Or sometimes they wouldn't show up at all. And we'd ask why they said, we're very, very busy. And I realized it wasn't their fault. It was this idea that, hey, we hired a marketer. The marketing magic will just happen. <laughs> so when we changed our model, you know, what we did was we said, look, we're, we know that these mass psychology principles that we're calling hype work, we, we've looked at propaganda artists, we've looked at activists, we've looked at con artists, we've looked at legendary rock stars, and we've distilled those mass psychology principles to reapply them ethically. So we know that works. So we know that we can build marketing campaigns, build experiments, build actions that are based on those principles. We know we can give you the tools to execute. We know we can come up with the ideas. We know we can iterate until it works. But if they don't put one foot in front of the other to at least try the experiment, we we found that they did, never owned it. So now what we do is we have our clients go out into the world and execute with us by their side. And the craziest thing is the results have been so much better. I mean, we got good results before. But ever since we made that little change where our clients have to have a little skin in the game, we've had an internet, an internet, I'm sorry, a, a Instagram viral star. We've had a major conference launched as a result of what we came up with that drove millions of dollars worth of business. So it was just such an interesting lesson in, in psychology. You would think that the more you do for clients in terms of actual grinding, you know, the better it would be. But sometimes if you set up a framework and a process that actually makes them better for the long run, everyone does better. So that that was a really cool lesson in 
in psychology and business and sociology? I mean, in, uh, what, what I experienced with my clients, I have different types of clients. I mean, that you just kind of sparked an idea in my head. Some of them is, uh, I want to do it myself. Just give me the principles. Uh, teach me what needs to be done. I'm going to do it myself. That's DIY, right? And then you have your do it for me, right? Here's a bunch of money. Take it and just make your magic happen, right? Here, here we go. Here's here, How much do you cost? It costs this much. Here we go. I'm going to give you the money. And a lot of companies and a lot of brands, as you know, they hire agencies and say, well, you're my agency. This is a new product coming out. Go and launch it for me. Right. Uh, and that's it. And they get not involved. And I think the middle ground, which is a hybrid model, uh, do it with me. Right. So I, am, I want to understand the principles as you're executing it. But explain to me, hold my hand, but I will I will pull the trigger. I want to be able to aim. I would like to at least understand what am I, what am I aiming at and what do I, what do I want to do? Well, with all respect to the companies who do everything for their clients, because there are a lot of good ones, I'm sure we have what you're calling the hybrid model, not because we want to do less work, but because our clients get a better result. So in other words, yeah, if you're selling an online course here, I'm going to teach you your stuff. Of course, that's a do it yourself model. But what I found was it's kind of like when I don't mean to compare my extremely successful clients to children, but you can say I'm a really great parent because when my kid asks for cake, I give it to them. And when my kid wants to stay up late, I, I make I let them stay up late. Or you can say I'm a really great parent because I support my children and I give them structure and I teach them and I even do things for them before they can do it themselves. But my ultimate goal is to raise a strong adult. You know what I mean? So I'm not saying it's like a hybrid model, like, hey, we do it with you. It's a model where we're trying to turn them into what I call hype artists, make it so that even if they're not with us in the future, they're seeing and interacting with the world a whole new way. Every action that they take is generating all kinds of attention. The way uh, the way Gary Vaynerchuk does, who we who we both have, have met, and in your case, you know very well, he doesn't put a dividing line between marketing and selling wine. He lives that stuff, right? And that's something that's really great about him. So yeah, it's not like we 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 give, you know, we're not like, oh, we decided to sell to more people and do a cut rate model for less money. No, I mean, if I have to edit people's stuff, I edit people's stuff. I'm there to have them be successful. It's just that we found that that model of letting them put some skin in the game so that they make the mistakes on their own and come back to us for support makes it so that the entire company and the way we get the way we make sure it's the entire company is once we get a winning experiment, we document the heck out of it. And then we make sure the team is trained on how to use it. So it starts with just some thinkers up top, maybe the founder, maybe the CMO. But once we hit that experiment and we've gone through that hard work and we've tweaked and iterated, now we document it with with um, on paper, you know, on in print and on video. And now we're, we're inculcating the entire organization. So I actually think from my perspective, it's more valuable than just, hey, I'll, I'll push the buttons on Twitter for you and hopefully something works. Yeah, I mean, especially if you if you document something, right? You, exactly. you put it on the factory floor, you put it on a whiteboard, blackboard, Zoom board, whatever. It, now it's written. When they see Forever. that, oh, the number yeah. is 46 and we right. suck and it's a letter grade C, right? We need to take that letter grade C and move it up to a B or That's by it. the next quarter, we need to get to A minus or by the end of this year, we should be around A minus, right? 
that's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we do, we use a scoring system. It's not quite that system, but we know what makes, as I call it a hype campaign, what other people call a marketing campaign, we know what makes it work for the long run. So whenever people, whether it's our clients, the executive suite or us going out into the world, we're tweaking that score until it's all fours and only then do we document it. So I'm getting into the weeds a little bit and I don't know how much your audience you know, needs to know the ins and outs, but Suffice it to say, we have our version of the grading system. That's very, very important. You just used the two terms, hype and marketing, interchangeably. But I think you, you have a very specific POV on how those two things are very different. I do. Versus... I just got a little, I, I do. I just got a little lazy with, with the terms <laughs> because I know that people think of them as the same. And because I think there was a time at its best marketing should be what I call what I think of as hype, right? I mean, marketing really should be driving attention and getting people emotional about what you're selling so that they'll buy it. But if that were the case anymore, why do we have so many, God bless them, but why do we have so many marketing professionals who really know their way around HubSpot and really know their way around Hootsuite. But if they had to run their own businesses, wouldn't get one sale. It's because they're marketing professionals, right? But they don't, they, it's almost as if they forgot what marketing is. So what marketing has become is knowing the right buttons to put on push on the right technology. I can't tell you how many times I've hired professional marketers and had to unfortunately let them go because they come in and they raise all kinds of smoke and energy and spreadsheets and outbound emails and this and that. And when you dig through the dross and there's you say, nothing. how many sales did we get as a result of your activities? There's nothing, right? So hmm. I, I consider hype to be any set of activities that generate a huge amount of emotion to get people to do take an action that you want them to take. And it can be a really awful action. It can be a really great action. It can be completely down the middle, but it's amoral. It's neither moral nor immoral. I, I wanna teach people to use these strategies to make the world a better place. But the other reason I use hype, and I got the term from hip hop actually, but the reason I use that term is because I often find that the best, let's just call them marketers, the people who do what marketing should do are usually on average, not the professional marketers, right? Like you look at a marketing professional in a fortune 500, you know, a director of marketing in a fortune 500 corporation, they're probably fine, but you look at, gosh, I don't know, uh, Calvin Klein, who would never call himself a professional marketer or Richard Branson, or, um, that person who started the Harry Krishnas or, you know, um, or Elon Musk, Elon Musk, or <laughs> Alice Cooper's manager, you know, these people would never say or heads of, of, of new religions, televangelists, these people would never say that they're marketing professionals. In fact, they would they would say I'm not a marketing professional, but you'll find that this, their understanding of human nature is just so excellent and it's really consistent you look at elon musk and the head of a televangelist church and you take the content out and they're doing the same thing they're playing the same beats yeah yeah exactly like you you want you you, you are playing with people's emotions right yeah either you're pointing to a pain point and then you're really, really squeezing it you know that it feels even more painful and then you're giving them a lotion right uh, yeah. And I, I think at its best too, I mean, if this was all just about like the pain point thing, which I do think is a big part of it, 
that's a bleak world to be in, although it's necessary. But I think at its best, hype can add a lot of color to the world. It can really, you know, the other side of the pinpoint is transcendence, right? I mean, you go to, I remember having this experience. I may have mentioned this last time because I use this story a lot. But when I was in high school, I was flipping around the channels, which is something you did back then. But we did have cable. So on, on one channel, there was a documentary about the Grateful Dead. And on the ch other channel was a documentary about, um, it wasn't a documentary, it was a televangelist thing. So there were people in the audience, a faith healing thing. So I was flipping back and forth. And in the Grateful Dead audience, all of these people were flopping around with their long hair and losing themselves. And in the televangelist audience, everyone had short hair and button up shirts, but they were all flopping around and doing this. And I was like, wow, the content of this message is completely different. But these people are feeling a wow. sense of transcendence. And both of them, as long as they're not giving their money away, are, are feeling that their lives are enriched by the thing. Right. So and I've had that. I'm a big music fan. I've had that experience with uh, and it has a charismatic musicians who, yeah, you know, David Bowie or whatever, who really bring people up. So I don't know. It can make the world a more colorful place when applied correctly. I mean, if the music is speaking to you, speaking to your soul and you're getting some meaning out of it versus a, 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 whether it's a sermon by a, a priest or a, a TV <laughs> evangelist or someone like that, you're relating to what he he or she is saying to you on, on, on TV or on, on the what do you call that pulpit, I guess, right? That's, uh, you're you're believing it, you're relating to it, right? You're engaging with that. And, right. and both are engagements. It's just two different platforms, you know? And, and I guess to add to that, um, we, we tend to think that it's just the music or it's just the words of the preacher, but the packaging is a big part of what makes you lose yourself. So like if David Bowie, I use that example because I'm a fan, but also because he's very theatrical. It, for years, he would just get up and strum his guitar and no one cared. And then he decided to like clothe himself basically as a space alien, a bisexual space alien named Ziggy Stardust with his painted face and his orange hair and all this. And people, you see the, the, the crowds at his shows and they're just swept away. And there's a reason that, for example, the Catholic church has stained glass and incense and there's a reason and huge cathedrals. The packaging the ritual, the theatricality is part of what people lose themselves in. A lot of times we think, hey, I'm losing myself. I, that's just sort of an add-on. That's partially what's making you lose yourself in it. People don't want to think that. But I would say if you're a fan, it opens the door for you to get the message. Whereas so, you might be close to it otherwise. We're actually kind of jumping into our topic now, right? And I want to focus because you talk about this in your high pan book, right? The, the secret societies, right? Even though like the Catholic Church, uh, it, you know, uh, followers of Islam, Muslims and uh, Judaism, Hindus, Buddhists, those are gigantic uh, societies, right? But there are secret societies. And uh, uh, what was his name? Kubrick? Uh, Eyes Wide uh, Shut? Yeah. You know, I remember that. Movie, you know? movie. Yeah. So there are, there are very secret societies also that... Um, I, I just want to dive into that concept uh, and then how can uh, understanding that improve uh, our businesses and, and the businesses that we, we are in? Well, yeah, there, there's a chapter in the book called Build Your Secret Society. And I, I sort of used it to be playful, you know, but as, as I got deeper into it, I started studying real secret societies. And we'll talk about those in a minute. But you were talking about religion. 
And um, another very large religion is the Mormon Church, the Church of Latter-day Saints, right? And massive religion, not a secret society. However, whenever they build a new Mormon church, but a Mormon temple, which only Mormons are allowed to go into, there's a small period of time before they consecrate the temple. You know, I guess they, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think they do certain prayers. I mean, I'm sure someone will correct me, but they consecrate the temple. That that you're that non-Mormons are allowed to go in to the temple. And it's, it's a building, you know, nice looking building, but a building. And people will come from all around to walk into this temple, you know, and nothing's going to change the next day physically about the temple. So this idea that you can't see something, that there's an exclusivity or an elitism. I mean, I would go if I was anywhere nearby. I'm curious, right? So I think the concept that of the secret society, you know, all throughout um, modern history, at least, who knows about antiquity, but modern history, there have been groups of people who have gotten together and they've had insider rituals. You know, they met um, under certain names. Sometimes you couldn't know who was in it. Sometimes you did, but people would identify themselves by certain badges that they wore or certain handshakes or whatever they would uh famously for the freemasons which is one of the most famous of these there's a checkerboard floor always you know um and when you get to the bottom of a lot of these secret societies they're really kind of just like social clubs almost like drinking clubs but for some reason people are fascinated by them people just want to be involved with it and and what it comes down to is when you share ritual with someone when you share a secret with someone it bonds you to them. So some of these groups were some of the greatest forms of networking that people have ever engaged in. You know, the founding fathers were, were all part of the Freemasons, right? So it's almost like we think that there are these secret societies controlling civilization and they do the Da Vinci Code and all these movies. But what it is, is the kinds of people who know how the world really work, the kinds of people who understand that everything is about connections form these groups. They get involved in organizations and they understand the role of theater and pageantry, right? Like they understand that going to a mastermind group and sitting in a, in a boardroom with fluorescent lights beaming down and saying, okay, everyone trade leads. Let's see, can we recommend leads? While you might do that for business, it's not something you would ever in a million years do unless you had a commercial imperative. And as a result, you don't really get that close to the people in them. But if you create an experience around what many people call networking, suddenly it no longer is networking. Those people become your brothers, right? People call it brothers or sisters. And brothers will do anything for brothers. Sisters will do anything for sisters. Networking partners or mastermind group fellows, you know, they help each other, but it's transactional. So... I started studying the dynamics at play, and it turns out you don't have to necessarily form a formal secret society to benefit from some of these dynamics in your regular professional life. Hmm. Now, how do I how do I use that? Like, let's say if um, um, so, mastermind is a very interesting topic. I actually this season I had a guest. Uh, he's phenomenal at building mastermind groups. Yeah. You know, that's what he does. That's what he does on a full time basis. That's what he consults on, builds them, helps them grow and, and things of that nature. Um, so a lot of, and, and even I have been thinking about mastermind groups for my I, business. I, I've been in them and they've been useful to me. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, 
um, what type of companies, let's go with that example, right? What type of examples do you have of companies where it makes sense for you to have these, uh, not necessarily mastermind groups, but these secret societies? Is the VIP club part of uh, Nordstrom private sale? Is that considered a secret society yeah. because they do private sale and it's exclusive to a very small group of people, not just email marketing, where you actually go and meet and get access to special collections? Well, I'd like to answer this in two ways, one in a direct way and one in a rounded out way, if that's okay with you, right? It's perfectly fine. So um, I think my favorite example of how the secret society dynamic can work, and remember, it's a dynamic. I, I'm not saying start a new Freemasons. I'm saying learn from secret societies and take the pieces that work. But, you know... Um, when I was a teenager, so I'm 45 years school between 1991 and 1995. So the music that was the most popular was um, alternative rock and grunge and like certain kinds of hip hop, right? And the band Pearl Jam at that time was one of many grunge bands, one of the biggest, and their fans were young. A, a lot of girls, actually, you know, they, compared to Nirvana, they were the more like pretty boy like band. And, and young men, but certainly all young people and that sort of thing. And at that early stage, Pearl Jam created a thing called the 10 super fan. You would sign up to this mailing list. Now it is 2023, I'm 45. Most of those grunge bands have died off. The ones that are around are typically playing casinos at this point, because rock music is at its low of popularity, especially that kind of rock music. But if you go to a Pearl Jam concert all those years later, they play arenas, sold out arenas all year long. And all of their audience is middle aged men now. No, no, not a lot of young people, but but hundreds of thousands, you know, millions of middle aged men across the country, you know, 30,000 people at a show. Because there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is their fans are obsessed with them. I have a friend who's been a Pearl Jam fan since he was 15, and he and once in a while he'll just get backstage passes in the mail, or once in a while he'll get um, like a special song on like a vinyl record that no one else can get, and it's like their way of saying like you're one of us. You may not be up on stage playing, but you've been our fan since 1993. And you're essentially part of Pearl Jam and only some people are in it. I'm not sure you can still join the 10 club. You know, it might only be for those early fans, but those fans will sing. They will, they will bring 20 people to a Pearl Jam show. They'll, they'll go to, they'll travel a thousand miles to go see the same show they saw last week. And I think that's the lesson. I think the lesson is, look, this is the roundabout way I was going to answer the question. My journey with this stuff is I, when I first went into business for myself, I took a sales class because I don't know, for, I didn't know anything about sales. And one of the many things that the guy said was, you know, you should network, you should do introductions and favors for people. You should go to networking events. So I did that. And it turns out because of my personality, I'm good at that. Right. So I would meet people I would find ways to help them, not expect anything in return. People would want to take me under the wing and I would get leads. That being said, those people wouldn't live and die for me. You know, like, like I was networking at kind of a low financial level because I was a new business person. 
And those people I was networking with, you know, they'd refer leads to me because they felt obligated to, but then the leads would be at a low financial level too, you know, so they couldn't afford me. And I was still eking out a living. And when I changed from, I want to network to, I want to build a circle of interesting, influential and powerful people around myself who I'd love to hang out with anyway, because they're really fascinating, but who have a whole lot of sway and who think of me as a friend. And I think of them as a friend that changed everything. So then the sort of things I started to do was I would run dinners. And, and in fact, you came to I one attended of one of them. That was and, fabulous. And, and, and when I invite people to dinner, I'm not like, okay, we're going to go around the table and exchange leads. I invite a group of really fascinating people. That was a great group, right? Oh, yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. And some people are very financially high level. Some people are really leaders in their field. Some people are just interesting, you know? And I put them in a room and they form a circle. And guess who's at the head? I'm not the literal head of the table, but I'm the guy. I'm that person. So that's not a formal secret society. But now we've had an experience together. I could see it in your eyes. I, I'm just going to say this because we're tear, tearing. When we first met, you were really nice to me, but it was very professional. You know what I mean? I mean, it was like, okay, we're going to say now. Hey, man, you know, it's so good <laughs> to see you. It's a whole different dynamic, right? Yeah. And, and so it's it's that what I'm, I'm not saying start a formal secret society, although that might work. I'm saying look at what they do. Look at how they create a feeling of camaraderie and brotherhood rather than just like taking business cards or adding to LinkedIn and jamming out a bunch of introductions, which is what people do. And it goes somewhere, but it's 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 not what the big players do. You know, it's funny. You, you just reminded me. It's, it's just a little uh, figment in my head of something that happened to me when I was young. I went into one, one of these networking groups because I was still growing up in my in my career. I, I went there. The, I, <laughs> yeah. met, I met this one guy. He goes like, oh, we're supposed to be networking. Here's my business card. Did not say anything else. Here's my business card. Right. Gave it to me. Not even hello. I don't even know the person's name. Gave me a business card and walked away. And he was doing the same thing to everybody else people that do. he needed to give his business card to people. Like, what, do I, what am I supposed to do with this business card? I don't even know you. <laughs> you know, you Frankly, that's me. the you equivalent. Hello. That's the equivalent of going up to someone that you're interested or going up to every woman or every man in a bar and saying, this is a singles bar and we're here to try to copulate. So here's my phone. <laughs> exactly. That's very funny. You know, but, but like, but, but that's what I mean. People like, they don't think of it in human terms. They think of it as like networking is a business development issue. We must exchange. I mean, I had a guy call me up. Someone introduced me to a guy once networking or whatever. And and the guy calls me up and I get on the phone and he says to me without even a hello, what can I do for you? How can I help you? What can I do? And I'm like, why do you want, I'm thinking to myself, like, that's, I, I understand that he write in a book somewhere that you should serve and you should like, and I'm, but I'm like, you don't even know me. <laughs> How about like, Hey man, nice to meet you. Let's talk a little bit. Maybe you yeah. don't want to help me. What if I'm a horrible person? Yeah. That's very funny. <laughs> Are, so, I just want to say, you see that with fraternities. I wasn't in a fraternity, but especially in fraternities and like Ivy League schools, these kids go to school together and they're not there to network. They're getting drunk together and partying together and having fun together. And 25 years later, they'll meet up. And if someone has a deal, they'll do the deal with their fraternity brother, not because 
25 years later, they were trying to network, but because they bonded 25 years before they were in a common that relationship doing things together. Yeah, exactly. So what I loved for you to do is give like two or three uh, examples of like well-known companies, uh, like case studies that we can go dive into uh, with secret societies where the implementation was successful. Well, I'll give you an example of a gentleman that I've gotten to know pretty well. And he does this really well because it's done from such a genuine place. So there's a gentleman named uh, Jeff Henningsen. Um, and, and uh, you know, I should say, I just got back a week ago from speaking to the company where he's at, this company Locked In. So Locked In is a $3 billion privately held insurance broker. And they do a lot of business to business insurance weirdly great vibe, you know, insurance can have a reputation. Sometimes these guys provide, and I'm not just saying it because, you know, they brought me out because I, I just went and did a, a talk and some workshops, but this very, very like put the clients first kind of attitude. And I think the reason that is the guy who founded the company, Jack locked in has a model where there's this locked in umbrella, but every person in the company has to grow their own book of business to the point where they even have to stand out in the marketplace. They have to do their own like, you know, um, thought leadership development and all of this stuff. So this guy, Jeff Henningsen, he's one of their top producers. He's the president of the Texas series, which is like the Texas division. And he, even though he it, it works for Lockton, you know, but again, you're paid on what you, what you, the amount of business you close. He owns a company, separate company that he fully owns called Northstar. And a lot of his clients are in the uh, private equity space. Northstar is a company that is an event planning company. And he basically, you know, he doesn't want to lose money on it. But the whole point of this company is that he brings investment bankers and their and and people in that industry and private equity people and the people they might do deals with into a conference a couple times a year he creates an amazing experience for them they get to know, they see the same people every year you know the hotel is included luxury hotel and it's very efficient because they can all mingle together and know each other instead of flying around the country to do these deals and the only thing jeff does is he's the facilitator he, he he's not selling his insurance there but they they know that he has the ability that he that he's the linchpin of this entire North Star community. The guy's one of the top 10 producers for a three billion dollar company. The business just comes to him wow. because he, he is like the linchpin of what is essentially a society. It's this North Star ecosystem. And the guy, if you speak to the guy, he's very soft spoken, strong, but soft spoken, very kind never hard. I've never seen him pitch or hard tell. He doesn't have that schmoozy salesman thing that we often associate with salesmen. The business just comes to him. You know, he puts more into building North Star than I think he does pitching product. So that's a great example. I was blown away by him. And I think, yeah, I, I, I was really, really impressed by his, his, his method. You know, when you um, build that relationship with a person, right, then it doesn't matter what you want to sell them. They actually come to you and go like, hey, I, I found out that you sell insurance. That's right. I have this insurance issue. Can you help me with this thing? That's it. Right. They come to you and say, not that you're going to them, hey, 
uh, I put pulled this networking group together and here's my business card and everybody gets 20% off for being here. <laughs> exactly. You, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. You know, he spends a lot of in-depth time with these people and they know him. They know him as an organizer. They know him as a member of their clan. It's got a name. So they all think of themselves as North Star people. That's another thing. You know, I, I, I could know, I, you ever notice this? Like, I, you know, so I grew up in the United States. The United States is a very diverse country. Someone will run into, you know, you'll run into a Southerner in New York, you know, ah, the Southerners, ah, the Northerners, ah, the Republicans, ah, the Democrats. Then you go to Italy and you run into someone in line at one of the tourist things and someone's from Mississippi and you're from New York City and it's, hey man, oh my God, it's so nice to meet you. It's so good, oh, an American, you know? And you're spending the whole day together, right? Yeah. Because you both have that capital A American and you're in Italy. There's something, we're very tribal. And and um, beyond the fact that like spending time with people, if you can spend time with people in a setting where you're both members of the same tribe, the North Star tribe, or the Delta News, or the Freemasons, you know, just by having that common label, you know, it's like the blue team or the red team. You you, you suddenly want to do things for those people. You want your team to win. Yeah, actually, I was I was uh, speaking somewhere, right, and we talked about like what makes uh, like Apple iPhone products so sticky, right? The retention. We were talking about customer retention, right? And how is it so sticky, right? Um, pe you know, people raise their hand. I was, I was the one who was actually uh, discussing this topic uh, at the head of the table, right? They raise their hand. Oh, it's uh, because of all the social apps. No, Android has social apps too. There, somebody else said something about, you know, oh, um, it's, uh, it's the cloud. Yeah, well, yeah, Android has cloud too. It's called Google Cloud Platform (GCP), <laughs> right, right? Exactly. Yeah. So. That's not it, you know. And then they went through the, this guessing game. And, and Samsung then, is is easier to use at this point, yep. you know. I mean, people say. So I yeah. said, I said, you know, they guessed quite a lot, like eight to ten people. And then finally, I said, like, no, it's the answer is very simple. It, it's actually a free app on 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 each phone. It's called uh, Apple iMessage. And there's a difference between blue yeah. people 100%. and green people. You're 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 so right. <laughs> I have had people say joking, but not joking. Oh no, you're one of the green people or whatever, you know, the other <laughs> color is. It's it's so it's so true. So even at that level, you you are segmented into two societies, right? 100%. The green people are they cannot get group chat, they cannot be they cannot engage with you, they will miss out on messages versus the blue people. Oh, that's good. If you have that group chat in a in a and then when you add people and one of them is green, you usually would drop them because uh that causes a lot of confusion. <laughs> you know, and Steve Jobs had that built into the DNA, dare I say hype, the secret society idea into the DNA of the company from the beginning. So like the whole ad, the ads with with uh, the Mac versus the PC, that's exactly what he did. What he was basically saying, he has a good looking hipster versus the sort of overweight, schlubby John Hodgman. And the idea is what he's really saying to you is, if you have a PC, you're an uncreative gray schlub. And if you have a Mac, you're an artistic, open-minded, creative person. And what's so funny about that is even though they were one of the most, they were at one point the highest valued company in the world. So I worked at this place called the um, 
Brook, uh, Brooklyn writer space. And it was in Park Slope, Brooklyn. You had to be a serious writer, a lot of novelists. I was a copywriter. But these people, you know, people didn't wear makeup. They only ate organic food. They were all hardcore liberals. None of them were consumerists. You had a few socialists in the room. You know how many PCs there were in there? Zero. Hmm. So you think that these people, I'm not into brands. You mean you're not into, you're not into Dell, <laughs> but you're into brands. It just has to be the right brand. It has to be your you're, team's You're wearing brand. an Apple iWatch. That's what you I mean. an it, iPhone. You're yeah. carrying a MacBook. Right. <laughs> but you're not into brands. No, you're not into brands that feel corporate. Yeah. <laughs> you're into corporate corporate brands that made themselves not feel corporate, though. No one would be caught dead with a PC in there. PCs work. They were writers. They're not doing graphic design. All you yeah. need, I mean, you could do that with a pad and paper uh, and a pen. Typewriter. Old a typewriter school. or, you know, a word <laughs> processor, you know, like, like a, just anything. I mean, you know, I mean, computers have their benefits, but you don't really need a Mac. Yeah. And Macs are more expensive by a lot. Yeah, it's Sometimes three to four times as much. Yeah, as I mean, a, as a Dell at that TV. time was like three hundred fifty bucks. I think a Mac was like twelve hundred. Yeah, yeah, and if you go a little bit higher end, it even gets even more expensive. You know. Yeah. Is there a particular like successful example you could share that the entrepreneurs who are watching uh, the show that they can take it and and say, okay, you know what, I can implement this for my for my business. Like a piece of advice, like like a way to sort of do, yeah. I think that um, having a name is such a simple thing, but having a certain group of clients or connections that share an identity and share a name is, is extremely valuable for the reasons we're saying. I mean, I, I think about Spartan Race, uh, which is so popular now, and Joe DeSena, who, who almost went out of business with that company, almost went out of business because he called it peak race. And the product was exactly the same. It was the same race. And then he saw 300 and he saw the Spartans, you know, and how this, there was this camaraderie with the Spartans and it would feel so good to be, call yourself a Spartan, like all the sports teams in high school. So we called it Spartan race. And, and if you complete a certain level, you get to call yourself a Spartan. And if, if you're really hardcore, you get to go to Sparta, you know, and all of this stuff. And the company soared. And, and I think that was the main change, you know, I mean, just by giving them a group identity. Right. So like if instead of networking and being your business card guy, maybe say, you know, once a month, I'm going to pull together a group of people who could really help each other and have an interesting, you know, kind of dynamic and come up with not just a random name, but a name that stands for what they do, maybe have an activity attached to it, maybe have, you know, you could make it even simple and corny, but but it works. You know, you go to a certain kind, let's say you go to Sri Lankan Foods and you call us the Lankan Society, you know, or whatever, right? It, mm -hmm. it could be something that simple. People will start to identify with that and, and, and a team, and everyone wants their team to win, as I said, right? Instead of everyone trying to get one over on the other one and get what's theirs, people are going to be looking for ways to get every member of the team to win. And if you have the right people on that team, um, it goes a long way. You know, just a, just a quick personal story there. Uh, so 300, you know, this is for Sparta, right? That's, that was, yeah. that's a line from the show, that's from the, the movie, yeah. right? 
my kids watched it, you know, when they were growing up and they were like, when they would get into the, into their game, whatever, basketball, whatever, this is for Sparta. <laughs> yeah. I was sitting, sitting in the sideline. I go like, guys, guys, listen, we were the other side. And now you're saying this is for Sparta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you? We were, the, we were the opposing side. <laughs> you mean you're, sport. you're, uh, are you, are you, are you? I'm Iranian? half Persian, half Turkish. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, you're Persian. That's both yeah. sides of me is the other side of that coin, you know. There's actually a story by, um, uh, I think it was Sherman Alexi, who's a Native American. And he said he was like sitting in the movies as a kid watching a Western and he was like cheering for the Cowboys. And then he realized he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm Native American, you know, I'm like, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? I had to explain yeah. to my kids, like, no, we're the that, other side. You're cheering for the one really, guy that, here. That's actually really funny. That's very helpful. This is for Sparta. Yeah. Those, those, <laughs> those, those kind of stories and identity markers can really, um, be powerful and that's also just very funny but yeah by the way just related to that also another personal story oh yeah turkey my... and persia yeah and greek yeah that, that's a really good point yeah <laughs> definitely the other side <laughs> yeah <laughs> but by the way Sorry. my, my yeah. son and my nephew actually did the spartan race uh it was oh, wow. at city field uh one year so that both of them had participated I, I i was i just joined them on as an audience member but they actually did the entire race at, at city field in New York, yeah, it's it's brutal. But they're young yeah. guys, so they were yeah they were exhausted. But they but it was fun for them for, do for doing yeah. that. Now, now you talked about the in the very beginning, I, and I want to just circle back to it because one of the mantras that I have in improving and growing businesses is test, learn, and optimize. Doesn't matter yeah. what it is. There, it doesn't matter if the idea is coming from a CMO, CFO, or the junior marketer that just came uh, out of college. Doesn't matter. Yeah experiment 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 and you talked about the importance of experimenting with uh in creating hype can you explain that what do you mean by that because i have a very different meaning in my head when it comes to test learn and optimize when it comes to e-commerce and growing revenues and stuff like that no but i think it's similar in its own way i mean you're looking at data but but i i think the basic i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i think the basic idea is similar so i mean Something that I'll often say to people kind of joking, but kind of not is that no marketer knows what they're doing and they laugh and, and including me. And what I mean by that is that you, you can have a good body of knowledge. You can know your stuff. You can know how the technology works. You can have a knack for it. But the idea that you're going to do A plus B plus C and get D and that that's going to work the same way it did a year ago. I don't know. Market conditions have changed, right? Uh, uh, different industries are different. What I do know, though, is that just doing random stuff doesn't work either, because there's some predictability in terms of how human beings will respond. I call them hype strategies. Other people call them influence. We know that scarcity is hard to resist, right, for example. Mm -hmm. So I, what I say is use those strategies of mass psychology as an umbrella. Don't just do random, oh, we're going to throw spaghetti against the wall think of like the mass strategies of how people respond but within those strategies do as small an experiment you can to still get a response but know that you're as likely to be wrong as you are to be right and the trick is to kill the experiment as quickly as you can while still knowing while still if it works being able to accelerate and systematize right so like um you know an example is um, 
I, I would write all kinds of articles when I wrote a column for Inc. And I knew the kinds of articles I wanted to, to write. But when I would do an article with a certain um, headline, it like uh, I did that was hype oriented. It was, you know, Simon Sinek uh, is full of hot air. Here's why you should follow his lead. The idea being this person you look up to and, and, and try to follow their advice. Maybe you shouldn't pay attention to their advice, but they're so popular. So you should pay attention to what they do. I got 150,000 views on that article. I usually would get like 3,000 back. Follow the message, not the messenger. That's what I would do. So I wrote about five different articles with that headline and that theme, and they would always blow up. That was my first hype stuff, you know? So then I said, well, what if I took this, this theme and I applied it to other things? So I started a hype newsletter where I didn't recommend normal books. I recommended weird mass psychology books. That became popular. So I got into this pattern every time I tried this certain thing, it would work. But I had to do that first step first. And it was small. And then I sit now it's my whole company. But at the same time, I wasn't just gonna like I see people who were like, you gotta put out three videos a week. What kinds of videos, you know, I mean, like, like, just about and anything. why three? <laughs> I, I, yeah, or like, be consistent, or right, right. But it's like, why three? But like, like, sh just about like, should it appeal to people in a certain way? Should it play with drawing lines in the sand? Should it be exclusive? Should, like what's the psychology behind it? So it's, it's a combination, understand what moves people, but know that the, the fact that you're going to just be able to reverse engineer the perfect, you know, experiment to turn yourself into a, a, a superstar thought leader it, 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 you may get lucky on the first try, but you shouldn't expect it. You should be in a learn, like you said, a learn collect data mindset. You know, you know, it takes time for things to work, right? And and people yeah. usually see the success after that Correct. overnight success that yeah. has happened. Some right. of those nights are, you know, that overnight, maybe 50 years <laughs> that right. night. It was a very long night. <laughs> right. But you also don't want to be, I agree, 150%. And at the same time, you don't want to let that an excuse be an excuse for just randomly flailing around with any rhyme or reason. You want to you want to walk the middle road. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, um, what are what are some of the like the initial steps you can take to start up a like a secret society? So, if there's a founder that's watching the show, right? They have a startup. the The business may or may not be up to a million dollars in revenue yet. So it's the very early stages, right? Um, and and they hear you talking about uh, secret society, and they go like, I, "I'm I'm in. What do I do? How do I get started?" Are there also not only the steps, but are there also some industries? Because not everything works in every every category, right? Where does it make sense to do? What type of a, not necessarily specific categories? What type of companies? And then what are some of the steps that they can take to make things happen or to start to at least taste it? I don't really know what kind of companies. I mean, I think that most of the high level principles can work in any industry. When you start to get into really specific stuff, no, right? Like you can't walk, if you're, if you're in the like insurance business, you can't walk in with, with a silver wig the way Andy Warhol did, right? But you can still package yourself in the spirit of Andy Warhol. So I, I would say that the thing to think about, and this sounds in some ways really simple, is fun. 
I, I don't mean fake fun, like running through cones, like forced fun that the that like you go to team bonding experiences. I'm thinking more about if you're going to ask a bunch of adults to sacrifice their free time, which they could be spending with their families, make it an experience that has a certain amount of theatricality or color or energy to it that it isn't just a drag, like sitting around a ballroom. So like, for example, um, a couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to have an event for all of the interesting, creative, entrepreneurial people that I knew. Um, and I talked to my accountant, weirdly enough, because he specializes in creative professionals, like a lot of advertising agencies and things. And I said, do you want to have anything to do with this? And he said, I'll help you do the whole thing. It would be really great. So what we did was we did it in the, um, there's like a secret room in the Empire State Building. It's not really secret, but it feels secret because it's like their like room where they have events, but it's like sort of tucked away in a corner on a really high floor. So like if you open the window, you can like see the clouds there. So we had access to that room. So we brought... We, we invited them to become part of, and it was very temporary, but we called it the International Back Scratcher Society. You know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. <laughs> and we basically invited, we sent them like a, a, a paper invitation in the mail, which no one gets anymore. The reason, by the way, Michael, I'm laughing. Yeah. The acronym is IBS. Yeah, I, know, I noticed that afterwards too. Yeah. And with the food we ate, I think a lot of people had that afterwards. It was very rich food. It was really good. Very like a lot of cream sauces. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we, we, we sent out an invitation. Um, you know, we sort of like had little like back scratcher charms, you know what I mean? That we handed, it was like tie when, when they came through the door, we gave out little pins that they could wear in their lapel to be part of this society. And we had all kinds of, I mean, we had some of the biggest literary agents in the city, which were people I wanted to know at the time because I was shopping my book. We had big advertising people. And, and I think to this day, once in a while, people will come up to me and be like, hey, International Backscratcher Society, you know? So I think that like, just, yeah, we all need to make money and we're all doing these things to, to make a living. But if you can give someone the opportunity to, to become, put a little mystery, a little fun, a little energy into it, it goes a really long way, you know? It does. It does. I mean, the thing is, I think in a society where people mostly it's very transactional in my view, right? Yeah. I'm going to give you this. What are you going to give me in return? And people pretend it's not that way. They speak yeah. about, oh, I give to receive and all this. But we all know what's what's going no, on. Even when you're donating, yeah. let's say if, you, if you're right. very rich, you're donating, I don't know, $100,000 right. or whatever, $5 million to this thing. You, you don't you go like I do it for the goodness. No, you did it because your name is going to appear on on that on on that room that says this is the X Y Z room. The tax write off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, given I mean all everything that you told us about secret societies, what is your number one hundred thousand or a million dollar? Because this is your second time. It's two hundred thousand dollars now. Huh. Two hundred thousand dollar expert inside into not only building but building a thriving secret society. I would say, and this has served me really, really well, constantly be looking for opportunities 
to give things to people that are cheap for you to give up and very, very valuable for them. And, and what I mean by that is, I mean, I'll tell you a short story. Um, when I was first starting out, before I had really codified these ideas, when I was just putting them together and trying a lot of things, I was, um, one of the things I, I was doing, I was, you know, I, I mentioned it before, I was writing for Inc. magazine. And um, at, at a certain point, PR people started to hit me up to write about their clients. So I had this meeting set up for me to interview this guy, uh, gentleman who, uh, who who literally started a business from his garage that by the time I met him was doing, you know, $500 million of revenue a year. And he started it by himself. And so we had this meeting and it was a perfectly good meeting. I mean, we went to a restaurant, I interviewed him, but we weren't like connecting on any really human deep level. And so we got up and we were, it was cold and we were putting our jackets on. I mentioned it, uh, something about it being cold. And he was like, not as cold as where I'm from. So he was in, from Indianapolis. And I was like, why'd you move here? And he said, well, I finally got the business to the place that, you know, it can, it can more or less run by itself. I'm the chairman of the board, but I don't have to run it anymore. And he's like, I've always been a huge fan of uh, live music. And Indianapolis doesn't really have a live music scene that's worth talking to. And New York does. And I just want to be part of that. Now, at the time, I mean, this was 11 years ago. I'm 45. So I was still sort of at the tail end of going out. You know, I don't really do that a lot anymore. But, but you know. I was, mm -hmm. I was at the point where I was still going to see bands. As you can tell from the examples I use, I'm a big music fan. I used to play in a band in New York in my early 20s. So I know, knew that scene really well. And I said, hey, you know, I'd, it'd be my absolute pleasure to, to take you around because I was doing that anyway. So cheap for me to give up. It was no skin off my back. All I had to do was take someone along with me and make a little bit of small talk. And I don't necessarily mean cheap financially. I just mean like things that are easy to do, you know? For him, it was remarkably valuable because that was the whole reason he came to New York. Um, so I call it personal arbitrage. It turns out that guy became my biggest mentor. He opened doors to me that I never would have had open to me, you know, so and, and it in some ways launched my career. So I, I think instead of thinking about networking, you know. I'm going to do introductions for people. Have you ever gotten, you just get in the mail, you meet with someone the next day, you have seven introductions and you're like, oh, I have to take these phone calls. This is a pain in the neck. I don't want to know any of these people, but I have to do it to be nice. You know, instead of doing that, keep your ears open and look for things that are easy and cheap for you to give up and incredibly valuable for them. Someone says, you know, my daughter um, is really struggling to figure out what they want to do after college. And they're really interested in, in X, Y, Z. And you have a little bit of knowledge there. Sit down with them for an hour. You know, give them an internship. That might be really cheap for you. You, you. you might be able to get some free work done and teach someone something. You do something for someone's kids, they will help you for the rest of your life, you know? So if you can constantly be keeping your ears open and looking for creating bridging that gap. I, I can't think of that's a million dollar piece of advice, a 10 million. I mean, most of the great developments in my life have come out of taking that that attitude. I mean, that's so true that I can I can tell you, even in my close network, I'm not saying link, LinkedIn network, I mean, close network yeah. people who are on my cell phone, right? They would just randomly put me in a chat with a, another random person and say, Oh, Sabir is the guy you need to meet. Why don't you? I, I'll let you guys take it from here. I have zero contacts into that conversation. <laughs> but the thing is, there's a trust level that 
if they're handing the person off to me, that I would be able to help them somehow. Either I That's help what them. you want to get to. Instead of just randomly throwing emails, you want to get to a level to someone where if they put you in a room with someone, they know they already it's going know. to be valuable. That's what you want to get to. Yeah. So what's what's uh, next on, on the horizon for you? And when can we have you back uh, with, with a major update? Oh, gosh, I don't know about that, but I'll come back anytime. Yeah, lots of good things are happening. I mean, I've been doing a lot more speaking, which has been great. I just got back from Texas. Um, I've been speaking on these subjects and that's been uh, really fun and, and and I hopefully hopefully helpful to the people I'm doing it for. We've been getting business has been growing, you know, we've we've um you know been been really expanding the business. Um, you know, like everyone else, it got scary during the pandemic for a minute, but uh made some changes and, and came out stronger. Um yeah, I mean the next move which I haven't done is to to write the next book and I'm 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 fishing for that that big idea, you know, so I can't I'm always wait for looking. It. I, I think yeah. it will be fabulous. I think with the show we did today, it might be how to build a, uh, a thriving secret society. I've thought of it. So it's good. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to hear that that appeals to you because I have considered that. I, I think it will be phenomenal. Again, Michael, yet again, a second time around. Thank you for being on the show. And thanks for what you do, Sabir. This is a great show and 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 uh, it's great that, you know, ha having me on twice. I really enjoy these in-depth conversations. So thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. And thank you, audience, for tuning in and keep on tuning in. We have fabulous and, and phenomenal uh, guests like Michael join us to share their knowledge and their background so that you can implement their recommendations into your business. Till next time.